Welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, a global and interactive podcast featuring weekly in-depth interviews with opinion shapers, innovators, newsmakers, experts, and artists. You can learn about us and our growing Gray Matter with Michael Krasny community by simply going to our website at graymatter.show. Our guest for this episode is Chilean author Isabel Allende. Frequently described as the most widely read Spanish language author, she is one of the world's most successful novelists, and her work has been translated into 30 languages. Born in Peru to Chilean parents and working as a journalist in Chile, she was forced to flee to Venezuela in 1974 after the assassination of her father's cousin, Chilean President Salvador Allende. Often identified with what has come to be called magical realism in literature, her books include a wide range of fiction, including, to name but a few, The House of the Spirits, Eva Luna, Of Love and Shadows, Daughter of Fortune, The Infinite Plan, The Japanese Lover, A Long Petal of the Sea, and Violetta, as well as Paula, a wrenching book of nonfiction about her daughter Paula, who died in 1992 at the age of 29 of porphyria, a hereditary blood disease. Among many awards and honors, she was awarded the Chilean National Prize in Literature in 2010, the U.S. Medal of Freedom in 2014, and the Penn Center USA Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. She now resides in Northern California, and full disclosure, is a good and much-loved friend of your humble host, and bienvenidos, Isabel. Gracias, Michael. So good to be with you again, and I'm going to take a kind of different turn with you. I always love talking with you about your work. I want to talk with you just about the role of the novelist. It seemed to me, and you know I've interviewed many novelists, maybe more than anybody, um, that there's a, a different attitude toward novelists, especially in the United States, maybe different across the pond in Europe or in other continents, Asia and Africa. But it used to be we went to novelists because of their imaginations and because of their fertile minds to talk about everything, in politics particularly, uh, politics I know to you, you said the muse may not be in politics or football. <laughs> but what about this notion that the stature of novelists and novelists as experts to talk about like things like politics has diminished? Well, in the United States, but not in the rest of the world. That's what I'm saying, yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, in, in many places, Chile, I know Latin, the whole of Latin America, uh, writers, not necessarily novelists, it could be a poet, sometimes are elected president because they, the, the fact that you, in a way, own the written word gives you a stature, the idea that you know everything, that you are like a philosopher, a sage. Or, well, I'm talking about men, not, not women, of course. Women writers is a different story. But men, and we have had in Latin America uh, presidents and politicians that got there because... They were writers. But, for example, we have a, a mutual friend, Amy Tan. Yeah. They still, because she's Chinese, even though she was born in Oakland, California, <laughs> will go and ask her about China and what she thinks of Xi Jinping and things of that sort. So it still occurs, but it occurs in weird and, and different ways. Yeah, but in the United States, I think that in, in general, if you are a writer of fiction, you are not supposed to be explicitly into politics, as it is in the rest of the world, where you really have to have a position. And you're writing about fiction, and therefore maybe it's uh, diminished because it's not real, it's not factual. 
It's... What is factual in this country, Michael? <laughs> we have alternative facts for everything. I'm talking about the perception. <laughs> the perception is fiction is made up, so it's not real. Uh, and maybe that's more true today than ever before, even though most of the things you read on the Internet these days are, of course, not necessarily real either. Yeah, nothing. Do we know what's real? You know, I, I read the news in the morning, and I don't know what's real anymore. I'm confused about the world. Well, we all are. But talk about the role of the novelist a bit. I mean, why be a novelist, first of all? What, what is... Uh... In my case, because I can't do anything else. I mean, this was not my first choice. I would have liked to be a chorus girl, for example. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I ended up doing this because I, don't, I can't do anything else. Well, I want to be a novelist, but this is one of the only things I can do, so we share that. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason for uh, our simpatico. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's also, though, um, I mean, you've sold, some estimate, 50, 60 million no, novels. 75. Uh, yeah, you can't even get my head the around that. The last time we counted, and that was before the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, 75, I guess Michael Connolly, who writes police novels, who I'm going to do a podcast with, has written 80 million. I, this is not a race, though, but... <laughs> You know, to think to what extent you kept your humility and how much people you have influenced through your novels, nevertheless, here's this declining stature for the novelist in America that we both recognize seems to be true as far as being experts. And However, Michael, more novels are sold today than ever before. It's not as if the, the genre is diminished. Maybe the stature oh. of, the, of, the, of the writer because there are too many writers, but but books sell. I mean, people have been saying that the novel is dead for 50 years, and that's not true at it's all. It's natural and necessary to tell stories. It's vital. Absolutely. I'm a great believer in it. But uh, to drop a name, Selman Rushdie, I could talk about that. I want to actually talk with you about women in Iran, because I want to talk yeah. about some feminist things with you, but... Uh, used to say, we don't need another novel, you know, uh, unless it's going to maybe change the world or unless it's going to have a great impact or something along those lines. It sounds a little cynical maybe, but there are a lot of novels out there, and a lot of novels unlike your work or maybe even Michael Conley's work that aren't worth reading. Why be a novelist? I don't know. Everybody has a story and everybody wants to tell their own story. They think they're there, that their story... Is unique. I get hundreds of letters per day sometimes. And often I have people who want me to tell, to write their lives. And they tell me the drama in their life, a divorce, for example, or they were fired from the, their job. And they think that that's worth, worth a, a novel because everybody thinks their own life is important. And it is for them. There used so, to be an old saw anybody could anybody's life could be a novel if it were told the right way, but it has exactly. to be told the right way. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. And you became, as I said in my introduction, identify with magical realism early on, especially because of the house of the spirits. But you've experimented with a lot that, of other yeah. things. I, I, I have written twenty six books and, and they not all of them are about magic realism. It's, magic realism is not like salt and pepper that you sprinkle it everywhere. It, it, it fits in some stories, and in others, it doesn't. How do you define it? Can, I mean, How do I know? 
No, how do you define what magic realism is? It's very different from fantasy. Fantasy is um, something like Harry Potter that happens uh, in the imagination of the author and the reader, but you never see a manifestation of that in real life. While magic realism is something that has a manifestation in life, but there's no explanation. Uh, Garcia Marquez ex has explained that in many beautiful ways because he was the master of magic realism. He says that, for example, uh, the, the fishermen uh, threw their nets in the ocean and they picked up elephants and giraffes and and there's this is magical unless you have the explanation. And the explanation is, is that a hurricane came and blew a, a circus away into the sea. And then you have an explanation. Without the hurricane, it's fantasy. With the hurricane, it's magic realism. Yeah, and you're right. Marquez is definitely a master of it. I mentioned Rushdie, who is also known for his magical realism, some of the really greatest authors. But it's often identified with Latin America and uh, more than any other region of the world. Do you have uh, any thoughts about Latinx as a way of describing people? People who are of Spanish heritage or Hispanic heritage? I, I don't mind being called Latina, Latino, Latinx. It doesn't matter. We know who we are. Everybody knows who we are. Well, I was going to ask you also, since you've just recently wrote a book about feminism, about your you have thoughts about the Me Too movement. I want to talk to you about feminism, as I said. You know, I think that the Me Too movement is really important, that it has... Um, set a, a standard but also there there is the, it goes sometimes to extremes and it can destroy people's lives uh, without real um, proof that things have happened that way but i'm glad that it's happening and i think you know it all started uh, years ago wh when um hi what was the name who accused clarence thomas with uh, Anita, Anita Hill. Hill. Anita yeah. Hill. Anita so it still Hill comes a little slower sometimes, but it's still coming. Yeah. yeah, Anita Hill was the one who started it. Yeah. The first one to dare stand up and denounce something, and she got really hit because of that. A lot of aggression, and she lost the the, the battle, but she won the war yeah. because she she changed everything for women. It's um. I sort of can't help asking you what you think about, since you mentioned Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, who has right. been playing or wanting to play a central role in the so-called insurrection. Uh, so it appears and testified behind closed doors to yeah. the investigative committee, which Don't you think that it is appalling that the husband has not retired after that? That he's still in the Supreme Court? I mean, you... What do... What does it say about those people? There's anger in you with something like that, isn't there? Indignation. And what about you? Aren't you angry about it? Well, I think the whole appointment, the Nita Hill things made me angry. And, you know, yeah. President Biden didn't play exactly a very exemplary role in that Not when he was all. a senator. And uh, now um, should Clarence Thomas recuse himself, at least recuse himself? I would say yes. Um, he should retire, go well, home. Or retire. 
Um, when he was appointed, you know, George Bush Sr. said, this is the uh, most qualified man in the United States for the Supreme Court, which was absurd at the time. They wanted mm -hmm. to have someone who was black and conservative, and he was black and conservative, still is. Yeah. Uh, and well, <laughs> that doesn't change. Well, I mean, so many causes are important to you, though. I mean, feminism, as I said, we can talk about that more. Um, you become an American citizen, and you have all strong views about America, which you've made evident. Uh, you have been fearless in speaking out in terms of your views. Uh, whether people agree with you or not, they should respect that, that fearlessness and um, strength that you have. But I've often wondered about the, the fact that you're still probably looked at as a foreigner by many Americans. You know, you're a refugee, and now you're supporting the cause of refugees uh, and feeling a great deal of empathy for them. Even wrote a, a novel about refugees. Uh, yeah, I my, my next book is about refugees also, yeah. refugees in the United States. And my foundation works with refugees. My daughter-in-law, who runs the foundation, just came back from Poland because she was working with women from Ukraine that were refugees in Poland. And six of them who were the closest to our project returned back. They went back to Ukraine because they couldn't separ be separated from their families. The men don't get out. It's the women and the children because the men are fighting. Yeah. And so they go back. And the husband of one was killed and the son of the other one was killed. I'm struck to ask you, though. I mean, you're involved in so many things, and we've done things together. We've done things for animal uh, rights, for um, literacy. Um, you know, Amy Tan, in fact, who I mentioned before, once said, you know, sucker for good causes. But why is it important to do good? I mean, because you've called yourself an agnostic, um, and I believe you are an agnostic. I wrote a book about agnosticism. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people do good because they want to be rewarded in heaven, or they. Why do you do good? I, I I don't know, Michael. I had never been asked that question, and I have never asked it to myself either. Um, I suppose because I was brought up with the idea that the more you have, the more you have to give, and that the more you receive, the more you are obliged to take care of other people and serve and whatever. It's a sort of a, a sober way of living. I was trying to explain to in, in an interview a couple of days ago why I live in a small house. My car has 10 year, is 10 years old. Why I don't, what do I do with my money? And I make a lot of money. It goes to the foundation and it goes to these causes because really I look terrible in first, Michael. I look like the animal. I can't drive a big car because I can't park it. I don't want a big house because I don't want to clean it. And I didn't want guests in my house, so I have only one bed. So there is a lot of reasons for this. I've had the privilege Practical of, reasons. Well, I've had the privilege <laughs> of being a guest in your house, but I've never slept in a bed in your house. So. <laughs> We're getting some questions. Uh, this is the first one from Keith uh, Harrison over in London in the UK who wants to know, how did the pandemic affect your writing? Do you still write every day? You know, I do write every day when I am when I'm when I have a project. This year, I started a book on January eighth, and it fell through in May, not because of me, but because something happened. 
And now I am idle and it's a terrible situation for me. During the pandemic, I was more productive than ever in my life. I wrote three books during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you also um, had some things to say about being married during the pandemic. Do you want to? Well, I got a new husband and uh, we got married and then the pandemic hit and we were stuck in a small house, which was meant to be for me alone and my dog. And uh, for, for two years inside the house with this guy that I hardly knew. So two things could have happened, that we would have killed each other or get closer. And fortunate, very fortunately for us, we got closer. Another question from Susan Franklin in Dayton. She says, are there things that are more difficult to express in English than in Spanish? Yes, yes. Things that have to do with the heart, they are easier to explain in Spanish. Uh, food, counting, praying, making love. I would feel completely ridiculous panting in English. And uh, it's uh, the things that happen in the, in, organically for me are much easier in, in Spanish. That's why I write fiction in Spanish. I can write nonfiction in English. You were talking about um, writing in a regular, almost ritualistic way. In fact, don't you, because you start uh, books the same time every year and so forth, um, don't you get dressed up and put on makeup too when you start writing? Every single morning. I get up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning and I have my shower and put on full makeup and dress up. Because otherwise, Michael, I would end up my life in a pajama. And I don't want that to happen. It also tells you what, that you're at work, that this is... Yeah, that this is my job. Yeah, this is your this job. This is my job. And you were talking about the effect on the heart. And I was reminded of a story I read about you when you went to India after your daughter died. And... Um, well, maybe you can tell that story. Um, I mean, it, you, you said it just clicked something in your heart. But yeah, we, I was with my former husband, Willie, who unfortunately died. Uh, and after my daughter died, I was in a sort of state of, I don't know, I was blocked as a writer, but I was very sad also. And in, Willie and a friend of mine thought that taking me out of my comfort zone would help, and we went to India. And we had rented a car in Rajasthan and, and with a driver, because it's almost impossible to drive in India. So the driver was this very tall, big guy with a, with a turban who would only talk to Willie. He would never talk to Tabra and me. And so, but the, when we were driving in the middle of nowhere, the engine got very hot, and he stopped uh, to cool the engine. And Tabra and I walked toward a group of women that were standing far away. So we walked there. They were very, very poor, uh, like five or six women with a bunch of little children. And uh, there was no language in common, but we touched and we gave them some bracelets that we had bought before. And they were fascinated with Tabra because she had purple hair. And then when the, the, the driver honked and we had to walk back to the car, one of the women came over and gave me this little 
parcel of rags. And, um, and I thought she was trying to give me something back for the bracelets. And I said, no, no, it's not necessary. I tried to give it, give it back. She wouldn't take it. And then I sort of opened these rags and there was a newborn baby inside. And, um, you know, I, I still can see it, Michael. I can see this baby that was dark and tiny and smelled like, like ashes and feces. And so I kissed the baby and, and tried to give it back and, and, and the woman wouldn't take it. And in that moment, the driver came running and he, he took the baby from me and gave it to the first woman that was there or put it on the floor, I don't remember, and, and dragged me to the car. And we had already started the engine when I said, why would she try to give me her baby? And the driver said, it's a girl who wants a girl. And that was the moment when I, it was clear to me what I had to do, I was, I turned 50 that year. What would I have to do with the rest of my life and, and whatever money I could earn? And especially the income from the book that I had written about my daughter. And I created the foundation. It's almost uh, as if she wanted to give you an infant, maybe an infant girl recognizing perhaps on some strange level, magical realism, perhaps, your loss? Because it was right after your daughter died. Right after my daughter died. Yeah. And, and I think about that girl all the time. Maybe, maybe that girl has lived in spite of, of the poverty and the fact that, that, that her mother didn't want her or couldn't, couldn't have her. Maybe she's still alive. What kind of life she would have? It would be a terrible life, probably. But something clicked in you, I think, is the way you described it. Yeah. Something changed. It was called an epiphany or whatever you want to yeah. use in the way of describing it. It's such an unthinkable and unimaginable loss that you went through with Paula's death. Um, and I remember how you couldn't write for a long period of time. Um, and then, again, Antonio Banderas had helped to change that, <laughs> as I recall. We can talk about that a little bit, but... Um, any advice to people who have a great loss like that in terms of recovering your spirit and your purpose? I get letters all the time about that, Michael, because of all my books, Paula is the book that I get more response from the readers, especially people who have had some kind of loss, and they connect with the book. Um, the advice, the only advice that I can give, because everybody mourns in a different way, and it very much depends on the culture also, where you are, because there are places where death is part of life, and people get together and they, they share everything, and they share death as well. But when in, in this part of the world where we live, death can be a very lonely experience. So the only thing that I can advise is get out, talk to people, share your experience, and you will see that everybody comes to help, that people gather around you. But the first instinct is to just close down, you know. We just 
become so so tight, so close. And it's very hard to get out there and say, I have had this loss, please help me. Ask for help. And it really is wonderful, the response. When you need your friends in your community and your family the most. um, The most at that point, yes. You want to tell the Antonio Banderas story? No, the Antonio Banderas story. (laughs) I had a dream. (laughs) I had a dream like two years after my daughter died, and the dream was that um, I placed a naked Antonio Banderas on a Mexican tortilla, slathered him with guacamole and salsa, rolled him up and ate him. And I thought that that was the the coming back to my body and to eroticism and, and the joy of life. And so I gave myself the task to write a book about that, about lust and gluttony, the only deadly sins that are worth the trouble, Michael. And and I wrote about aphrodisiacs. And you're still at uh, your ripe age, which you don't hide. Uh, well, I'm 80. You're 80, <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember Gloria Steinem said to me, this is what 80 looks like. And yeah. both of you look terrific. <laughs> at, um, but there's that sense that somehow when you're 80, lust should be subsiding or gluttony should be going away, uh, that those kind of appetites don't befit someone who's an octogenarian. Why not? Why not? Absolutely. Why not? Yeah. The problem is that often the, you are you are stuck with a companion that is also 80 or maybe 86. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then go figure, how do you can have, how can you have lust? Well, you can still eat and drink. I want to talk with you a little bit more. We got a lot of questions coming in. I want to go to many of them as I can, but just when we were talking about feminism, um, now Maduro is head of state in Venezuela where you spent many years. I'd be interested in your thoughts about Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, sending Venezuelan refugees to um, Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, that's a political stunt. Yeah, well, in fact, Ken Burns, who we did a podcast with a few weeks ago, said and angered a lot of people. He made the analogy to this is the way the Nazis did things in propaganda. He wasn't saying, you know, that you send Venezuelans there because it's not Auschwitz, really. Yeah. He, but he would realize that. But it's a political trick uh, or a political uh, stunt of some kind. Um, but I was thinking about all the dictators now. I mean, there's this this movement to the right, to authoritarian, fascist. Except in uh, Italy. Um, well, <laughs> you've got a fascist woman in Italy. In Italy. A follower, uh, well, I don't know, she says she's not a follower of Mussolini, but that party was linked to Mussolini. But I'm curious to know your thoughts about this desire, populist desire to have a strong man. I mean, it's I don't know if it's ever a been strong stronger. A strong figure. That it could be a woman or a man, but a strong figure, authoritarian. And mostly it, men, of course. Yeah, so. of course, and turn to the turning more and more to the right. But, you know, I think that this goes in cycles, Michael. And democracy is very hard to maintain, very hard to 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 keep alive and to defend it. Um, we know or we think that it is the best possible way of government. But people get tired. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm... After seeing what has happened in Chile in the election in the, in the United States, I re, uh, now in Europe, it seems that there is a 40% of the population 
that has this authoritarian fascist tendency. It's there. And sometimes there is a political figure like Trump that, that taps into something that is latent there always. And it just emerges, but it's there. It's not as if it's, it's gone. It's gone. In, in, in Germany, what happened with the Nazis? Why, how is it possible that in a country like Germany, so civilized, so, such, a, such an old culture, something that Nazism could happen? Well, it was it, there. It, it was always there. It was always there, perhaps, but a lot of it had to do also with what happened after World War One, which yeah. is a lot, you know, what, the what, defeat of the war, of was the war and the humiliation. The Germans, yeah, you know, it was like the South and Reconstruction in some ways, and you know, the the victor wanting the spoils and wanting to essentially have hegemony over. Yeah, but you know, get into some very troubling questions here. Um, I like to be in the middle sometimes politically and navigate through uh, troubled waters. Um, I understand seeing Trump as a fascist or a demagogue, um, but there are those who say, well, now we have inflation and we have you know, difficulties with our 401ks that, under Biden that we didn't have. In other words, they look at it from the standpoint of it's the economy, stupid, and I want a leader who can make it better for me on a day-to-day -day basis. But the economy wasn't better before. Pardon? The economy wasn't better before, and the economy has nothing to do with 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 Trump. That's the argument you hear from many people who support Trump that it was better, and that we were not so. Sh I mean, we're not so shy about uh, the way we use our resources, particularly oil, and we were moving now more toward alternative energy. I mean, what happened in Chile, for example? Let's go back to that. Um, was no, I know, very disappointing to you. And yes. Everybody on the left was disappointed. The Constitution was rejected. And the Constitution was... But I think that you have to explain to the, to the audience what happened. Because Let's most, hear your explanation. Because most people don't know. Chile, in, in, uh, tw in 2018, had what they call estallido, the explosion, in which they raised the, the, the fee in the subway for the equivalent of 10 cents, and the next day, you had a million people protesting in the streets. They were not protesting for the, for the subway. They were protesting. They didn't know why, what. And there were no political parties behind it and no leaders. It was just anger, accumulated anger. And that was channeled eventually to the idea that we had to change the Constitution that had been imposed on the country by the generals during the dictatorship. And that, okay, we agreed on that. And we chose 155 people that would be the people from different venues. They were not lawyers or judges. They were just common people. Ordinary people. Ordinary people to draft the Constitution. And they did. They, it took them a year or more to draft a Constitution. And then there was a plebiscite to approve or reject the Constitution. This Constitution had very good points. One of them was gender parity everything would be uh, in the country, the administration of the country would be, would be done by men and women in equal terms. Climate change was a problem, and that would be tackled also, so the respect for nature. And other things that, that were very good points, but the, the, the extreme left took over and they proposed 
a lot of stuff that extreme were, left or extreme right no the extreme left that that within the the constitution that proposed things that people didn't understand that that they were not well explained the government had all the power to explain very well and they didn't use it while the right had the press and 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 media also but they you know what happens with the right michael and you know this they have one goal and they know exactly how to do it and everybody agrees on one thing the left is always like trying to hurt cats it, 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 and that's what happened eventually but what is i think more serious is that the constitution was rejected brutally rejected and the government and the left and the people who drafted the constitution blame others they don't they have not sit down to analyze in depth why it was rejected is there an analogy here in you know aoc and those who are seen as being too liberal and wanting to change all our pronouns and that sort of thing that they become the scapegoat or the target that the right can use and does use it, it that that's what happens all the time so we we go from the pendulum goes from one extreme to the other yeah well that's why we like to think of ourselves as somewhere in between even though It's, it's very hard, hard to be in between. <laughs> it's, <laughs> well, it's difficult hard. sometimes. The, the, the waters are very choppy to navigate uh, between Scylla <laughs> and Charybdis. Um, I've got a question from Mexico City from Juan Robles who wants to know, what led you to become a writer? I was originally a journalist. Then I had to leave my country and I ended up in Venezuela where I couldn't work as a journalist and I ended up administering a school Uh, which is was not the right job for me and i became a writer just because i started a letter for my grandfather my grandfather died and i kept on writing and that's how the house of the spirits came to be you were a little inspired by neruda though uh, pablo neruda who by, you know i was inspired by all the writers of the boom that i was reading at the time i belong to the first generation of latin american writers to be brought up reading the other great writers of the, the the great writers of the boom i was thinking of neruda though because you did a, uh, some journalism on him and he, didn't he tell you you should be a fiction writer yeah but that was that was years before it was that was in 1973 and i became a writer in 1981 uh, neruda told me that that i should uh, quit journalism because i could not be objective I lied all the time and if I didn't have a story I made it up. So why don't I swift switch to literature where all those defects are virtues? Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York says, "What city, state or country has given you the most creative impact in your career?" It's got to be Chile, isn't it? Or is it? I think that is my childhood. Yeah. All oh everything comes from my childhood and that was in the house of my grandfather in Chile. In Santiago. It's amazing though to me. I've just been teaching James Joyce in a class I do at Stanford Continuing Ed and even though he left Ireland and you know he was in exile for years. He lived in Trieste, he lived in Zurich, he lived uh, in so many Rome, so many other places. He identified as Irish. All of his work was more than anchored to Ireland and his boyhood. So. Yeah. Yeah. Came back 
Um, any thoughts about what's going on in Iran from you, especially since it's young women? Um, young women who yeah. are defying, defiant and brave. And it's, it's amazing. This is a revolution of the women. It's fantastic when women get together, what they can do. But they're being beaten down. I mean, it's, it's well, terrible. Well, what do you happening. expect? They're being killed. They're being killed. Yeah. And still, every day, they are out there in the streets. They're out there taking off their hijabs anyway. Yeah, and burning them. Yeah. I it's mean, amazing, the courage that Does it, it takes. give you hope for maybe... It a, gives me hope. To get I, those imams out? <laughs> you know, I've, I've thought many times that if women create, if in every country there was a political party that was the women's party, that women would vote for women's issues, they would be so powerful. Forget the Democrats, forget the Republicans. If we had in this country a women's party and we only voted for those candidates, men or women, who, who would defend what we need and we want, we could run the country. How about like the old Greek uh, play, if they withheld sex? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that the women in Iran can do that. Um, Greg Smith from Atlanta wants to know, do you ever get writer's block? And if you do, how does a great writer move through it? I got it once with Paula. And... Uh, and uh, the way I got out is giving myself a task, an assignment, and write something that was nonfiction that I could research and could get me back into the process. There, there is also the, the writer's block that happens when you are in the middle of a book, and then you reach a point when you can't go back or you can't go forward either. And that, what I recommend in that case is move to another scene. Just forget what that part where you are stuck and jump forward to something else. And and then you will get back your juices and be Do able you know to what's going to happen uh, for the most part when you're writing a no. novel? No, no, I have so no idea. So it surprises idea. you? Your characters take on a life of their own? That sort yeah, of thing? I have no idea what's going to happen or how the book is going to end. Uh, when I start a book, I usually have a vague idea of what I want to write about and I have researched some. So I have some material but very little. But you do a lot of research. Well, when it's, a research. when it's a, when it, it is a historical novel, I do a lot of research, previous research, uh, the time, the place, and the event. And that's wonderful because I have half the book there. But then during the process of writing, I have to fill, fill in the research with the details. But what draws you? I mean... You've written such a range of books. You even wrote a book about Zorro. You wrote a book uh, that takes place uh, in California um, during the gold rush. Uh, you wrote a book about uh, uh, Japan. I mean, the First World War. Is it just something that it's like a magnet and pulls you and that's a story I want to tell? I don't know. I think that I have seeds in my belly and each seed is a possible story. And then sometimes that seed starts to grow and grow and takes over. And then I, I start thinking about it and dreaming about it. And then I know that that's the story that I will write. And then I start the research. Is that seed, can, is it images or is it just a, an idea that's kind it's, of inculcated? For example, when I wrote um, 
island beneath the sea. That's that's the story of the slave revolt in Haiti in 1800. Why would I write about that, Michael? It has nothing to do with my background. But I started thinking and thinking and thinking, and it took over, like, like a feeling. And then after the book was published, I realized what the feeling was. It, the, the book is about absolute power with impunity, mm. which is something that has obsessed me all my life. And that's not only the military like in Chile. It's not only the police uh, or, or, or the torture. Often it's the father in a household. It's the, a boss. It's, sometimes you get that, that, that power that can do anything. And the, wor the, the worst example, of course, is the master with the slave. And maybe that's why I wrote the book. I needed to explore that in myself. There's a Stanford professor who I've been reading, uh, Steve Pfeffer, who's an expert on power, one of the world's experts on power, in fact. And the question always comes up, what can one do against power, particularly absolute power? Because absolute power yeah. corrupts absolutely. As the yeah, old, yeah. Uh, um, and what does he say? Well, he's got some very good ideas. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Well, no, let's hear what he He's the expert. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways to challenge power, but... It depends what country you're in, what culture you're working in, um, how much power you have behind you. And much of the world is powerless. I mean, exactly. in reality, it has no exactly. power. But sometimes people get so angry that they are willing to die. And that's happening in Iran with those women. That The, the, the anger is greater than the fear. Arab Spring? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, disappointing in some ways because thought it would lead to a lot more freedom, but... You know, it did lead to some. Uh, I have a question from Cape Town, South Africa, from Hasmuk Gajar, who says, this is sort of another one of those questions, like, how do you undermine power? He wants to know, we all seek happiness. We all see what? We all seek happiness. He wants to know, what is happiness for you, Isabel Allende? It has to do with love. And I, I'm not talking about romantic love only, but it has to do with the love of... of animals, and you know that because we've worked with that together, <laughs> the love of nature, the love of a cause that, that mobilizes you and, and that you're willing to give your life for that cause. Uh, and uh, That's happiness. Happiness is when you, when, when I feel that the little that I can do can change somebody's life, but make somebody's life better. And, and then I feel this, this exuberance inside that is happiness for me. But, but happiness is very different from joy. I don't feel happy in a party. I don't feel happy um, with, with what gives joy to most people. Happiness for me is a quiet thing that, 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 that is inside. I would say that I am happy with my husband. I just like the, the the basic line with him is very calm and wonderful and that's what that's happiness it's a good yin yang yeah uh, you know i wake up really early every morning at around half past four or five and i spend half an hour in bed thinking not thinking just take taking in the happiness that i enjoy 
the happiness of waking up in the darkness, in that bed with my husband who is snoring next to me and two dogs on the bed. And I'm so grateful that that nothing bad is happening, that, that I'm there, that I will get up and have a cup of coffee and a, and a hot shower and no one is bothering me. But that's gratitude maybe more than even happiness, isn't it? But isn't the same thing? Maybe gratitude and maybe they're synonymous in so many ways. In almost. so many ways. Yeah. When, when you are happy, you are grateful. And when you're grateful, you're happy. Most of often, the time yeah. you're happy. But this is also feeling alive in many ways, isn't it? Feeling your sense of yeah. being. Yeah. You know, I, go, I, I work in an attic and I have to go up and down the stairs a thousand times a day. And the fact that I can run up and down the stairs at 80 is a joy. It's a sense of happiness. At least once a day, I stop and I say, how happy I am that I can still do this. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Isabel Allende, and uh, we'll go to some more of your comments and questions. Um, James Babbitt of San Diego wants to know, how do you choose the narrator for your audible version of your books? There's a good practical I question. I don't use them. Uh, usually the editor chooses the narrator, and they submit to me two or three voices, and I can choose between them. But it's the editor who, who usually does it. You lose a lot in translation, though, don't you? Actually, I don't, I don't think that the story is lost. Details are lost. Yeah. For example, uh, the, the, the name of a tree or uh, something in, in um, which book? One of my recent books. Oh, Violeta. Um, I wrote that um, wrote about the, the first person who climbed the Everest, who was from New Zealand, and in the translation, by mistake, it came out he came out English. You can't imagine <laughs> the number of letters that I have from New Zealand of people who are indignant because I'm I, <laughs> I it wasn't my fault. It's, it was lost in translation. I can't imagine because even on a smaller scale, a story worth telling. We were on the air once together, and you came in. And it was really sweet of you, literally. You brought me some chocolate. Um, <laughs> it was Isabella Allende chocolate, and they had yeah. marketed and used your image and so forth. And uh, I said, Isabella, we've known each other for many years. This is going to sound ungrateful, and I don't mean to, but <laughs> I, I don't like dark chocolate. I only like milk chocolate. <laughs> the brouhaha is the only word to use <laughs> that started. When people... I mean, it has such strong. It was like when I shaved my mustache. I couldn't believe, you know, the how number. many people. And I'm a, I was a guy on the radio. What do you, what do you care about whether I shave my mustache? People get involved in these kind of imbroglios. Yes. It's yes. unbelievable. Um, let me go to some more questions and comments. Uh, Robert Choji of Los Angeles, could your guest tell us about her book, Paula? What were the challenges in writing such a personal, personal story? Well, uh, when my daughter fell sick in a hospital in Madrid. I, uh, she fell in a coma, and I was sure that she would come out of the coma. So um, I started writing notes about the things that I would have to tell her to remind her who she was and what had happened, because I was told that people who come out of a coma usually have problems with memory. And uh, so I had that notebook, and then I wrote to my mother every day, when my daughter died, I had the, the notebook and I had 160 letters that my mother gave back to me in which I 
I had told my mother, shared with my mother, every single step of that terrible, tragic year. So I had all this material, and I, I, I just poured it in a sort of chronological order. There was no thinking, no planning, no script, nothing. It was a book written with tears. And it took a few months to write the book, like a, almost like a, like a journal. So the, 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 the challenge was after the book was written, what would I do with it? I thought it was a book for the family, especially for Paula's husband, Ernesto. They had been married only for nine months, but they adored each other, and they had been together several years. And uh, when Ernesto read the book, he said Paula would like to see this published. She would, I'm sure. And so, and so did my mother and other people, my son. And so finally the book was published, and it was a good thing that it was published. It took me some time to, to accept the fact that this very raw um, narrative would be out there and people would know things that maybe they shouldn't. But it, it didn't matter because at the end, as I said before, that's the book that has given me contact with my readers at a very deep level for 30 years, and it's going on. And 30 years before that, maybe, House of the Spirits, you were writing letters to your grandfather. So you're writing notes to your daughter and letters to your grandfather. I mean, there's a similarity there. I have been writing letters all you're my Writing letters life. to your mother almost every day, weren't you? Every single day. Yeah. I have 24,000 letters in perfectly organized in boxes in the garage uh, but per year. Each box contains between 600 and 800 letters. Those are my letters and my mother's. That uh, My mother would sometimes write more than once a day. And when she discovered email, then she would flood me with letters. <laughs> uh, Letter writing is a lost art, though, in many ways, isn't it? It is, yeah. unfortunately. My mother was brought up at a time when calligraphy was important. The way you wrote, the, 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 the grammar, the beauty of, this, of the language was important. And she kept that all her life. She died at 98. And the last letter that she wrote six days before she died was at 7 o'clock for me that the, on a Sunday. And two hours later, she had a crisis and died six days later. And that letter that she wrote, the last letter of his life, is perfect, perfectly written. That is lost. Now we, we communicate facts. But, but the beauty, the poetry, the, the metaphors, the imagery, all that's lost. Your mother was obviously a major influence in your life, also with respect to the voices that you have created and the language that you've used. My mother was my reader for years and years, and for her, language was very important. So I learned with her red pencil to be aware of how you 
Sometimes, Michael, you have to replace three adjectives with a perfect noun. And that challenge is beautiful. To read something and you know that it is, it has too many adjectives. But you need to find the perfect noun. My mother would do that. Some say you can change everything just with a comma or a semicolon. And it's true, isn't it? And, and obviously with an adjective. Yeah. Uh, you can change the tone of something by changing the adjectives in a paragraph. Speaking of adjectives, you know, Gertrude Stein was very uh, insistent with Hemingway that he should cut out his adjectives, you know, <laughs> write more concretely and avoid the adjectives. Uh, is that good advice for writers? For some writers. For some writers. Depends on their style, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, I try to, now, I try to avoid it because before, when I wrote The House of the Spirits of Love and Shadows, and I, I was living in Latin America where everything is more expansive and, and abundant and more baroque. But I've been living in English for many, many years. And I realized that you can say the same things and, and create the same emotion in the reader without being so, so overdone. Well, I used to uh, say that the two polarities were Hemingway on the one hand, who did write, actually he could write glorious sentences when he wanted to and often did. And Faulkner, on the other, you know, who just wrote the sentence could be a whole page yeah. with all these floral and rococo-type adjectives. Yeah, he, he's a big influence for Latin, for Latin American writers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me go back to Mexico City. A question. How has your writing helped in any way in the way you live? Um, every book is an exploration of my own life, my memory, myself. Why do I choose to, to write this book in particular and no other book? It's because I'm looking for something. I, I'm trying to understand something. And the more I understand about myself, the more my life becomes more um, compact. Uh, in the sense that I know what I want, I know what I don't want, I know what I'm going to do and what I can't do. And I am happier with myself than I ever was before. And I think my writing has given me that more knowledge about myself and the kind of life that makes me happy. When I describe to you the, 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 my house and my car and whatever, that makes me happy. And, and I don't waste time trying to have a house in the beach. That will make, create a problem for me because now I know what gives me happiness. So this, we were talking about happiness before because of another question about happiness. You find happiness in your work. Yeah? Yes. Especially yes. when it's right, when it feels right. Yes. And, and, and when, I, when a character does something that is unexpected and surprises me, I scream with joy because <laughs> now I have it. Yeah. <laughs> You should record that sometime. Keep keep the <laughs> machine going and, and record that. Reed uh, Mainberg uh, from Santa Rosa says, Isabel, what do you feel optimistic about in today's world given the state of the planet? The state of the planet seems awful because we have too much information. But I was born in the middle of the Second World War. When, when there were 50 million people that were refugees, when... After the Holocaust, after the atomic bombs, 
look, I, the, the world has never been a, a nice place. It's always been a mess. And I think that now, because we know more, it seems worse. But there are less poor people than before, more people that live in the middle class, more women that are educated, more people that are not hungry than ever before. So we have to compare to the past. Some and, people make the argument that uh, things have, with just what you've mentioned and catalog, maybe never been better. Exactly. Exactly. My, my grandson, Alejandro, sent me a questionnaire about, you, you had to choose those questionnaires with A, B, and C, and you choose. And it was about this exactly. How many, are there more or less women educated today than before? Are more people hungry? On, so I have it very fresh in my mind. And I answer with, all my answers were sort of in between pessimistic. And then I got the answers. And I was wrong in almost everything, except the women's stuff. I was wrong about everything. But we do have... It's a better world. ...hundreds of thousands of refugees, and with climate change, there are going to be more climate refugees and so forth. This is one of the causes that is very important to you. It's yes. very much part of your heart. And you get into, again, this... How, we have plenty of room in this country, you know. It's a, about... And we live in this planet that has become a global place. And people move. And we'll keep moving. Everything moves. Capital, oil, guns, narcos. Everything moves without borders, except people. And that will change. Sustainability always comes up, though, and the difficulty of you know, who do you, what refugees you let in? You're letting refugees in from Ukraine, but not necessarily from because the they borders are white. in Latin America. If they're white, exactly. Not from Afghanistan. Um, who are also white, by the way. Who are, yeah, but they're seen as darker or they're more yeah. feared because they're Muslims. You know, there's all yeah. these differences that play into the whole equation of attitude toward refugees. And it's a, it's, it's a complex, multidimensional problem. Uh, I mean, when you start analyzing policy, and trying to bring policy in with humanity and yeah. the concern for the humanity, the teeming wretched of the but earth. But what, what is really interesting, at least in Europe and in this country, is that we have this anti-immigrant sentiment and policies also. And the, we have aging population in, in Europe and in the United States that needs to be supported by the young. And we have less and less children also. So we need all these young people coming in to work in the country. And we also need people who are willing to do labor that no citizen would do for any money. And yet, only we, wake, we let them in only as much as we need them. And then we have to kick them out. That needs to change. We need to be able to give people an opportunity to work and then go back if they if they want to and come back again to work if they need to. So Nobody wants to leave their home, their language, their family, everything that is familiar to them, unless they are in, their, in, in real need. That's why people leave. Why do you think the Ukrainians are leaving Ukraine or the Syrians are leaving Syria? It's all the they violence. The violence. They are running away for their lives. Ever given any thought to uh, running for a political position in Chile or here? No. Uh, 
my I write fiction and fiction the the politics in in what I write are in between the lines because of course I chose to write about refugees so of course I have a position about it but I'm not preaching and I'm not doing politics I'm telling a particular story of one refugee but you certainly make very graphic and immediate the sense of what people go through and this takes extraordinary empathy sometimes to make it detailed and make it vivid and make it felt by your reader that's why you need to choose one story because if you give statistics if you say that 200,000 people are go are going hungry in Ethiopia that doesn't mean much to the to the reader but if you take one person that is starving one family who has a name who has a face who has a story then you can connect because we are all similar michael we are all people well keep on telling stories um and keep on keeping on as we used to say because <laughs> at 80 as i said you are uh, a wonderful model for all of us i haven't hit that rubicon yet but i see it up ahead and i hope that i have your vitality still always love talking to you thank you You're so much far away from being 80 <laughs> you are far away <laughs> not far but enough. let me tell you it's a great time because you really don't give a damn about what people think you just have a few years to enjoy enjoy them yeah i i saw an old friend yesterday who made it this is a funny story made it out of cancer he had bad lymphoma and he said I made a deal with the devil. It sounds very Faustian because it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said if I can live to 80, uh, you have my soul. He said, I'm 80 now. I have to renegotiate that contract. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Michael. Many thanks to Isabel Allende for being with us on this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and an important reminder that if you or those you know, respect, care about, want to learn more about Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and find out about our unique and growing membership Our community of listeners simply go to graymatter.show. Thanks to all who joined us live or heard this episode. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at c a c h e f l y .com.